Welcome back to the Business of Biotech. I'm Matt Piller. And while today's show represents a bit of a departure in terms of guest selection, I fully trust it's going to be an informative and valuable chat. If you did the math, I'm estimating around 96.7% of my guests are leaders of companies developing biologic therapies, founders, CEOs, CSOs, CMOs, and so on. And that's obviously by design, but a bit earlier this year, I came upon a podcast called Molecule to Market. I gave it a listen and I instantly became a fan of its host, Raman Segal. Like me, Raman is not a scientist or an MD, but he's a guy who's deeply invested in the life sciences community and its people. And he's specifically dialed into the burgeoning CMO and CDMO spaces where his professional roots are sunk. He got a start in traditional Marcom roles, then cut his life sciences teeth at the Specials Laboratory and SCM Pharma before launching his own firm. He's an entrepreneur. He's a best-selling author. He's a podcaster. He's a blogger. He's a husband. He's a dad. And he's one of the most enthusiastic, energetic, engaging, inquisitive, and genuine people I've met. And I'm super happy to introduce him to you. Raman, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks, Matt. That is uh, that's quite a lovely intro. So I uh, feel very honored to be here on your show, especially as I'm a seemingly a bit of a wild card. So thank you very much for having me. You know, it's fun to be the wild card, isn't it? You know, to, I mean, you, your your roots in this space are are far deeper than mine. By the way, uh, I've been covering uh, the life life sciences and specifically biotech, bio, biopharma for I don't know about three years now. I think. Uh, you know, you, your, your roots, at least you've got that marketing manufacturing experience. And we're going to get into that a little bit when we talk about that space. But um, I, you know, I, as I said, the first time I heard your, your, your pod, uh, I, I just knew instantly, like, that's a guy that I'd like to have on my show because of, uh, you know, like I said, your, your inquisitive nature, your energy level, uh, and just your, your chops in the space. Uh, one of my favorite episodes, by the way, was with the BioFarm guy. That was a terrific episode. That was, that was a good one. You. If you're going to check out Molecule to Market, check out that interview with the BioFarm guy. Um, and Molecule to Market is where I want to start, Ramen. I, I want to start with the podcast because, like I said, that was kind of my first exposure to you. Uh, and I, I'm not going to do it justice, so I'll let you do the talking here. But Molecule to Market, is uh, it, it, it's, it's, uh, it's a pharmaceutical-focused uh, podcast, but more specifically, you kind of spin around the circle of the, the outsourcing space, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. So it's very much a platform to have a conversation with an interesting personality from the outsourcing space, uh, be it on the vendor side or on the kind of drug sponsor side as well. Um, obviously, as the market has developed over the last 20 years or so, the outsourcing space has become bigger and bigger. And it's you know, some of the firms in that space are as large as some of the big pharma companies these days. So it's focusing on leaders and businesses and interesting personalities. And it could be you know, preclinical CROs, it could be clinical research organizations, uh, CDMOs, packaging companies, analytical tech companies, anyone that's providing some kind of support or service to the pharma and biotech community is, is the bulk of the guests. But as I mentioned, we do get some guests on from, the, I suppose, the buyer side, which is always really interesting as well to get some kind of counter perspective. And interesting, that's when I came across the exact opposite of your story. I came across because I went, "Oh, this is a this is a market where these are the folks, my, you know, our, our audience is typically aiming at." Yeah. Um, so it's great that we can we can do this and kind of, you know, those industries or those subsectors are colliding in real real time. So it makes sense for us to collide these podcasts as well. Gosh, they sure are colliding in real time. And we're, we're going to touch on that in a little bit, but you bring up a really interesting point, you know, like uh, that's one of the reasons I was so, so comfortable and, and wanted to have you on, on the show, right? Like I, I generally do not uh, invite by design uh, the leaders of, of CMOs and CDMOs and CDMOs and CROs on, on the show. And we'll talk about why that is a little bit later. Um, and you know that that's a good thing. We can we can work synergistically. There's no competition here, Rami. <laughs> exactly, none at all. Yeah. Don't, don't 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 let your pendulum swing too far toward that sponsor side. Then we're going to have problems. Uh, <laughs> why why was 2020? Uh, you, you launched the podcast in 2020. Why why was that a, 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 a I guess a pivotal moment? I mean, I, I'm assuming it was a pivotal moment. That's when you decided to do it. What what was what was going on there that uh, you know that sort of incited this this idea? So. Uh, 
historically, I'm I'm a massive fan of podcasts. And I used to do, um, when I was a kid in my early 20s, I used to do local radio DJing and stuff like that. I always quite fancied myself as a DJ. And then real life hits and you have to get a job and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and I just, podcasting added so much value to my life. It's been a big part of my personal growth and my business growth and, and all that type of thing. And I always fancied doing a podcast. I never got around to thinking about what I'm going to do it on and what the subject is because it's a very fragmented and um you know a ballooning space now podcasting and then I actually remember the flight I was on which was to JP Morgan in January of 2020 just prior to COVID and I had I was flying I was living in Boston and I was flying to San Francisco and I had six seven hours on a plane you know I remember just moved to the US relatively recently and I was scratching my head saying how big is this country? I've got seven hours <laughs> on a flight. Um, this, you know, in the UK, that would get me to Dubai. And uh, but I use that time to really think about what what people might find useful and where was my expertise and where was my network. And it was very much thinking about something that no one had done before, but actually that I was passionate about and that I could give sticking power. I mean, Matt, you've probably seen the amount of podcasts that come and go. And there's like a graveyard of podcasts out there where people have started them, done a half a dozen episodes. And, you know, we're nearly, I think we're into the 80s or 90s now in, in, in Molecule to Market. And I suppose what was, what it coincided with the launch was COVID. And that was obviously unintentional given given what happened. But, you know, when when the pandemic hit, events stopped, people couldn't get out and about. And you know, obviously there was virtual events and all that type of stuff. But actually... What what we found was people were trying to get their fix of industry insight and personalities and what's going on and keep their pulse on the space. And the podcast just hit, was it the right, you know, right place, right time? And, you know, it's like anything and like it's like in my businesses watching the emergence of digital technologies, you know, events are not what they probably were 20 years ago. And there is a much younger audience coming into our industry. Uh, you know, I I found out last week that I'm just a millennial, <laughs> which surprised me. And that was, you know, I was born in the early 80s and, um, you know, as a 40-year-old, that 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 shocked me. But, you know, there's a generation who are in their 30s that will get all of their information from podcasts, and that's no different to the industry that we operate in. So it was it was luck in that sense that the podcast managed to grow, the, the platform tried to grow quite quickly and surprisingly. And then, you know, it's kind of a snowball after that because you then get guests asking to come on and, you know, rather than you having to go out and find guests, which, you know, is, is often the challenge. Yeah. 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 It is. It is. It is a ton of fun. And kudos to guys like you and me who have the, the stick-to-itiveness to see this thing through because you're right. Uh, you know, we, we host on, on Buzzsprout, for instance, and I, I think they host like, I don't know, half a, half a million or so podcasts. And many of them are, you know, have have come and they, they were gone sooner sooner quicker than they came i should say so um yeah it is it's it's an excellent medium and when so when, when you're thinking about i want to ask you like when you're thinking about the sponsor organizations the my, my audience for instance the leaders of, of new and emerging you know pre to early stage clinical uh biopharma companies and beyond but that's the bulk um uh a podcast like Molecule to Market that is focused on that outsourcing space. What, uh, you know, what, what, I guess, what takeaways, what benefits do sponsor companies get from these conversations? And I, and I want to, I want to give you a little bit of context into that question and and we'll talk a little bit about the CDMO space because when I spend time talking with, um, with biopharma leaders, generally I get uh, an either or kind of take on, on outsourcers. Like, yeah, we, we couldn't do what we do without outsourcing partners because we don't maybe maybe don't have the capital to build our own manufacturing capacity or the where the the desire to do that um or you know we we'd never work with an outsourcing partner because and then fill you know fill in the blank because what we do is far too sophisticated and we don't trust anyone else to do it or the wait times are just way too long or you know we can't trust our supply chain to a a, a third party um, so, so kind of with that in mind, you know, the, I, I guess that kind of, that kind of, I guess, sentiment, um, 
what what is what would be the advantage? What would be what, what would be the advantage of, of tuning into these conversations about outsourcing with the, and the outsourcing space with uh, with your guests? Yeah, I mean it's a great it's a great question, and I, I suppose outsourcing and it's by its very nature is quite broad. So I suspect all of your listeners will outsource something, yeah. <laughs> whatever that might be. That could be medical communications, it could be preclinical, it could be manufacturing, it could be logistics. The chances of one of your listeners doing everything in-house is very unlikely. Um, what I would say is the value in, in tuning in, particularly for anyone that's, I suppose, responsible for outsourcing or involved in the supply chain, or involved in procuring services and vendors, is they'll be able to, they'll be able to see the world through another set of eyes which you know like anything in life is that kind of empathetic ability in nature often makes you a better you know, whether it's a person or an organization when you know the challenges and also i think just having your ear to the ground of new technologies of new organizations and, and all that type of stuff i think certainly in the cdmo space one of the observations i've made is you know a lot of the emerging biotech and biopharma companies might you know they'll default to the big CDMOs often, right? Because they don't know any different. And that's where you get some of the challenges that you've met there, which are crazy lead times, you know, high prices, you know, all that, you know, almost a sense of being a tiny fish in, in a big pond. Mm-hmm. And the particularly the CDMO market is a very fragmented space. And it's probably the same for most elements and most segments within outsourcing. And so I think exposure to other potential partners in the sector is 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 a positive thing. And just getting an understanding of, of how these organizations work and what their challenges are. Because whatever way you look at it, if you look at the types of, you know, whether it's orphan drugs, personalized medicines, selling gene therapy drugs, all these types of modern, sophisticated, current day technologies and medicines come into the fore will probably require some form of outsourcing. So in my, in my opinion, I think it's it's useful to have that take from from that audience of, of what's going on in their world. It's probably no different. It's almost like you know why would it why would an investor audience listen to to your podcast because often your your audience is probably selling to the investors. But I tell you what, they'll make them better investors if they listen to your podcast. And yeah, I think it's a similar a, yeah. similar knock on effect. Yeah, the, the investment community was uh, I don't I don't want to see an entirely unanticipated uh, bycatch, right? But but we 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 do catch a lot of the investment community. As a matter of fact, I have a lot of an investor uh, response in 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 many cases has been like, how much do these companies pay to to be featured on your podcast? I'm like, oh, they don't pay anything. Like I, I ask them what I want to ask them, and they're like, wow, it's an awfully nice opportunity for them. You know, I try to I try to steer them away from the J.P. Morgan pitch deck <laughs> approach, right? You know, yeah, we want yeah. it to be a, to, to be a commercial, but I, I get their interest. And um, it's it's interesting you say that, man. So do I. You know, I say to my guests before they come on, say, look. In a sense, you can promote what you want, but it's going to make people switch off, right? Like, and I ask guests to think about, I spend quite a lot of time on each episode understanding the person and understanding their personal journey. Yeah. And, and the reason I do that is often whatever the end result is, is something that I'm very proud of and something that they want to share with their family and friends and colleagues because it has that personable, authentic nature. And I think whatever that medium is, whether it's podcasts or TV shows or radio, personal story, stories and anecdotes are just powerful. Like we, we love stories, but at the same time, I'll ask about trends and technologies and what's happening and what they're seeing in the market and tips around leadership and things like this. And actually what we try and steer away from is, Oh, you know, we are a CRO that does X, Y, and Z. And like, right. no one, people can find your website and look at that stuff. So right. I think you, you bang on to, you know, from an investor perspective as well to just, you know, avoid the big decks and kind of exactly. sell it, the sales pitch. Yeah. Yeah. You've been, uh, you've been running around the, the outsourcing space since 07, 08. Is that yeah. about right? Maybe um, even before it might've been 2005 was my first ever kind of, um, flirtation. Maybe even before that might've been 2004 actually that I, uh, I stumbled across this space. Yeah. So let's, let's talk, let's talk shop a little bit about like what's different uh, now from, from the way it was then, how it's sort of the dynamic of the industry and how it's impacting uh, 
sponsor companies. Um, yeah, I mean, so I mean, I suppose at a very basic level, it's a lot more. I'd say it's a lot more sophisticated, and it's a lot more. It's a lot more global. It is a it is hugely advanced than say 15, 20 years ago. Um, you know, in those days, it was predominantly small molecule. The majority of the market was dominated by small molecule API and finished dosage forms. And to your point earlier on, anything more sophisticated and fancy was done in house because no one wanted to hand over their IP <laughs> to a partner. And I think times have times have moved on. And certainly now, from what I see, is the the growth of the sector has been phenomenal in in all all aspects, and and that has been driven by your audience, right? Like whatever way you look at it, the outsourcing space lives and dies by what's being thrown over the fence <laughs> from big pharma, from biotech companies, from biopharma companies of all shapes and sizes and you know that's that's fueled the growth it's fueled the investment i mean you would have seen yourself in the last few years the level of mna activity in the outsourcing space is off the scale it's you know i know one of my investor kind of connections said it was they they deemed it as one of the most investable sectors in the world right now and you can kind of see why when you look at the tailwinds in the sector and COVID kind of added fuel to that fire as well, because that certainly had an impact as well. So, you know, in a sense, it's a very different kind of space. And one of the other things I would say is, I think 15, 20 years ago, it's quite a transactional kind of relationship. And it's funny because I've heard quite a lot of guests talk about this as well, who've been in the industry for a while. It was kind of like, you know, vendor and buyer, right? And, you know, you are our supplier, you are producing X. And I think, you know, those were in the days where majorities were CMOs. It was before the D in the CDMO appeared, for example. Um, and what I think has happened in that time is just, a, a, it's definitely moved along that spectrum to be less transactional and more partnership-based. And, you know, how can companies collaborate and work better and add value? And it's still a very competitive market space. So there is lots of opportunity for your audience to kind of engage with different companies and look for new technologies and, yeah. It is a very exciting time, I have to say. You know, it's been a it's been a very solid six seven years in the outsourcing space. Um, I certainly feel very grateful to have stumbled into this sector and and spent my entire career in it. Yeah, yeah, and and it is. Uh, I mean, you mentioned <clears throat> you mentioned M and A, the sort of representative of of the growth in the space, but even organic growth, man. It seems like I, I don't know that honestly. I'm not exaggerating. I don't know that. Two days go by uh, without a release crossing my desk about ground, you know, ground being broken on a new outsourced manufacturing facility, funded by you know any, any number of investors or, or companies. Yeah, um, there are a lot of holes being dug in the ground here in the states uh, to create new new manufacturing capacity and, and pharmaceuticals. So, it is an incredible uh, growth space, and like you, I feel fortunate to be in 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 this space. I mean the 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 um, I don't know the, the the people, the the personalities, the opportunities that to to learn, um, the altruism. I mean, it, it's a it's a wonderful place to be. I, I totally agree. I totally agree. And you, it, I have worked in other sectors when I was younger, and I have to find. I do find it a very. I'm gonna say friendly, but that's probably too extreme. Like it, it. There are much more cutthroat sectors out there, I would say, than this one. And there yeah. is always a desire to produce something ultimately that's going to help patients. Like everyone is united with that same goal. Clearly, there's commercial <laughs> considerations and in, sure. in, you know all that. But having an industry that's ultimately united towards producing new medicines that are going to impact our families is is always a good thing. And I, and yeah. I don't think we should ever forget that. For sure. And I, and I think, you know, to bring it back to one of the trends that you mentioned, that that collaborative spirit is uh, it's, it's, it's presenting itself in the in the outsourcing space. To your point, uh, you know, we're seeing hybrid models. We're seeing, you know, uh, models where uh, sponsor companies are plugging their senior leadership and, and, and shop floor expertise into the, you know, the outsourced uh, the outsourcers facility, you know, to, to, to work on their, their projects, um, all sorts of, I mean, it's, it's, it's sort of a, you know, there are unwritten rules, right. Maybe not even rules is what I'm saying. Like there, there are all sorts of different models taking, 
shape right now in terms of how sponsors and outsourcers are working together. And in a way, I mean, that's, it's awesome. And it speaks to that collaborative spirit. Um, it also kind of, kind of in a way can maybe, maybe convolute or confuse the easy transactional, easy to understand transactional uh, nature of, of the past. I mean, what, what are you seeing there around how, I guess, sponsors are digesting, are they even aware of the opportunities for, you know, co-work environments and hybridization? And I don't know what the buzzwords are for, for that, that concept, but how are they embracing that? Are they aware of it? How are the, how are the outsourcers um, re, you know, remodeling their commercial model to, to accommodate that kind of relationship? Yeah, I think it's a it's a really interesting topic, actually, and it's funny because I definitely think there is a, a there's a blurring of the lines happening at the minute, which wasn't there twenty years ago. And what I mean by that is, you know, it's interesting. You know, a lot of the big pharma companies have are building facilities or are reusing existing facilities effectively as contract services now. So, you know, if you look at someone like, you know, Abbey Contract Manufacturing d- does it, Sanofi has a business like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Pfizer Center One is one of the best CDMOs in the world. And it's it's a subset of obviously Pfizer. And and I think what'll be really interesting in the next few years is will it go the other way? And what I mean by that is, you know, some of some of the contract service providers are really big organizations now, multi, multi-billion dollar organizations. They have the means, they have the knowledge, they have the capability to actually develop products. And I think what will be really interesting in the next few years is how, if we see any of those businesses try to almost morph into their customer base, I mean, mm-hmm. that causes all kinds of potential IP conflict and, and all that type of thing. Um, so, you know, back to your point around hybrid kind of collaboration and how companies work closer together the partnership thing is so important and it is if you are working on say a critical medicine with a very tight tight milestone to hit a clinical deadline or to hit a commercial deadline it's it's not you know you have to work closely with a partner together but there has to be that that level of trust between the companies and so it's going to be fascinating in the next few years to see those lines blur and see if (laughs) If you know, in twenty years' time, Matt, you and I might be doing the same podcast because they might be the same companies, which is quite ironic because obviously, you know, where this all stuff, where outsourcing came from, if you go back, you know, 30, 40 years ago, which was, you know, companies building facilities for clinical trials, not using them and thinking, well, that was an absolute waste of money. There's probably a better way of doing this. Let's find a contract manufacturer who can do it. So I mean that the, the kind of full of life so it is quite funny yeah and it's it's business i mean at the end of the day it's business um you know you're you're just talking about we we may be maybe running the same we'll co-host let's make a pact if if it comes to that you and i will co-host the the business of biotech molecule to market podcast or if you prefer (laughs) the molecule to market business of biotech uh but you know a company uh i've i've had um Tim Miller, the CEO at Forge Biologics, and is a company that comes to mind. You know, they started out as a company that uh, intended to address a specific indication and build a therapy for it. And you know, it's business. A smart way to fund that was, hey, we got we have enough money to build some manufacturing capacity. Let's, I you know, quote unquote, rent it out, right? Like, well, that's the company's gone insane. I mean, they're building like crazy, and that now they're you know first and foremost, an outsourced manufacturing partner and just happens to be yeah. working on a, a proprietary pipeline as well. So just one example, but exactly what you're saying. Um, all right, let's, let's talk just for a few minutes about some of the, some of the challenges in the space. I don't want to get your take, take on those and then, and then we'll shift gears a little bit, but you know, as I mentioned, you know, the, the sort of mixed emotions around lead times, there's uh, everyone, whether you're doing things in-house or outsourcing right now, everyone's affected by supply chain constraints um, in API, in consumables, you know, in single-use uh, technologies. Um, but let, let's let's start with those. How you know, just generally, how how is the outsourcing community reconciling those challenges? Well, I mean, it's interesting because what you said before around there's a lot of breaking ground happening in North America. And I think there's been a few, 
there's been a lot of challenges in the space in the last few years, and it's been driven by a few kind of key factors. And, you know, whatever way you look at it, there isn't enough capacity and capability in the outsourcing space to actually meet the demand of the, of the of drug sponsors at the minute. The US in particular is quite an interesting place because actually over the last 20, 30 years, more and more US business has been sent to Asia in terms of, you know, look at API manufacturing, for example, COVID then hits and it left North America and actually Europe quite exposed, I would say, from a capabilities and capacity perspective, which in turn obviously makes for vulnerable supply chains for the biopharma kind of in, in big pharma industry. And I think you throw into the you throw into that mix the geopolitical challenges of you know not just COVID in terms of transporting things and supply chains, but also just you know what's happening in Europe at the minute is. You know, you've got instability just makes for a very exposed and vulnerable supply chain. So I think some of these challenges are definitely contributing to what we're seeing in terms of kind of movement in the space at the minute, which are definitely seeing redeployment of supply back to to the West. You know, this was a trend that was talked about early on in COVID, but the more and more people I speak to, the more and more I'm seeing this being a real thing where proximity of supply is becoming quite important to um to 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 drug sponsors so you know you know 10 years ago they might have sent everything to so you know somewhere else in the world and actually there's there's almost a, a nervousness there around well what happens if we have another pandemic what happens if a boat gets stuck somewhere else in the world what happens if things you know escalate in Europe, what's that going to mean for us, particularly in North America, what's that going to mean for our supply chains? So we've seen some interesting things around, you know, whether it's redeployment or re kind of distribution from kind of east to west. The other thing I think which is quite interesting, the kind of challenge there is just, and I think this is important for the kind of the biopharma listeners of yours is almost building strategically building resiliency into their outsourcing models. So, for example, you know, could they have a contingency outsource? Uh, could they have a contingency vendor in place? Could they have another supplier elsewhere in the world kind of kind of set up? Um, you know, it's all, and then that's having a knock-on effect, if that makes sense. Because you know, say you have a biotech company that cannot miss its clinical milestone, and they've got two CDMOs set up, right? Those CDMOs then have multiple API and excipient suppliers and packaging suppliers and everything that sits underneath that. And then they've got multiple suppliers because no one wants to wants to miss. So I think the complexity around supply chain, the vulnerability is a massive challenge at the minute. And you know, what doesn't help is obviously the costs of doing anything at the minute, the cost of transport, inflation, salaries, interest rates, everything is on the rise. And I think that that makes for kind of more, more challenges. And so but I'd say, you know, back to your earlier conversation risk sharing, risk mitigation, and actually just working closely together. I think in a more proactive way, I think everything I've just mentioned there was reactive to what happened during the pandemic. And I think companies should be taking a much more proactive view on, you know, we can't predict every eventuality, right? We can't predict if there's going to be another outbreak of war, if there's going to be sure. you know, another epidemic or pandemic. But what we can do is we have enough history now to see you know we know what things could happen and let's get ready for these things so i would certainly encourage your listeners to be proactive about that kind of risk mitigation and supply chain security piece because things are going to go down things are going to be challenging the reasons could be anything um but nevertheless just trying to work closely with vendors and outsource partners in the space and having those open conversations around like how do we build in a kind of you know uh, almost like supply chain security but for, you know like quality by design but for supply chain i think mm-hmm. is is really important when you're striving to excel in a new arena the best guides are the ones already doing it well the business of biotech brings those voices forward to help new and emerging biopharmas turn their innovations like mrna and cell and gene therapies into clinical realities. Tune in and subscribe for insights on hiring, regulatory, and other need-to-know topics for biopharma leaders. The podcast is brought to you in collaboration with Cytiva. 
Check out their resources at Cytiva.com backslash Emerging Biotech. That's C-Y-T-I-V-A.com backslash Emerging Biotech. Yeah. All right. One more challenge I want to throw at you um, to get your take on. You mentioned earlier, we were talking a little bit about the synergy between uh, our audiences, right? Like the the biopharma Mm -hmm. sponsor audience is what's driving this incredible and unprecedented growth in in outsourced manufacturing. Um, And has been for quite some time. Although in the last 12, 18 months, uh, a lot of that early stage uh, innovation. A lot of those early stage companies are are struggling, you know, pretty pretty mightily from a, a capital market standpoint, right? A cash runway standpoint. Uh, we're seeing a lot of a lot of uh, innovation die on the vine as as emerging biopharma companies, you know, either either shut down specific candidates or go completely belly up because they're running out of cash and it's difficult to go out and procure cash right yeah. now. Um, which is, uh, you know, it's 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 disappointing from an innovation standpoint. It's also a little bit scary from an economic standpoint because uh, a lot of the a lot of these emerging companies are sort of the the, the innovators, the, the the sources of innovation, and also the future of of these therapies. Um, so, what impact, I guess, do you do you anticipate that might have? Um, you know, assuming it's even a little bit protracted. Uh, is that is that kind of restriction in capital markets, shortening cash runways, kind of a bear biopharma uh, investment uh, market right now, dampening the the growth, or will it dampen the growth of, of the outsourcing space? I mean, it's it's such a good question because it's, it's downer, like, though. I do. I feel like I just sucked the air out of the room with that. No, question. well, I mean, the reality is exactly what you said there. You know, all the numbers indicate that funding is down investors are looking to invest their money elsewhere and whatever whatever way you look at it that's going to be less funding coming into the sector so what it means is the 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 biopharma businesses are going to have to learn to operate with less now in my business experience some of the best creativity came when we didn't have anything or when we had very little so from from being resourceful can often come great creativity and great innovation. And so I, it, and you know, the <laughs> sector has had it pretty good for a long time. Yeah, it's true. okay. It's okay to tighten the belt every so often and be like, okay, let's think about how we do things in a slightly more cost-effective way. I mean, the amount of people jumping jobs at the minute, the salaries being offered, it's just insane. It's just absolutely insane. I have a, I have a recruitment business as well. And I can, I can see (laughs) what kinds of salaries are, are being asked for and stuff like that. And that will not last forever because companies just can't continue to afford it, especially if the capital markets kind of start with the cash starts drying up. So my, you know, my take on it is I think, Biopharma companies, by their very nature, are often entrepreneurial. They're often got great leadership teams, and they'll they'll find a way to innovate because they always have done. And I have pure real confidence in in the sector to be able to to do that. And the knock on effect actually for the outsourcing space might be bizarrely that even more is outsourced, which sounds like a contradiction in terms. But if you take a if you take a a, a biotech company with Say it's got 500 staff, right? And if you look at that staff count and say, well, there are 300 overhead within that team that could be outsourced instead. You know, there are another 50 that are nice to have type staff. You could see a model which is a slightly more along the lines of a virtual biotech model, which is much leaner. And actually, all that does is outsource more because it's everything's done on a needs much must basis. So in that sense, I think. It's difficult to predict what the impact's going to be on the outsourcing space because just because there's less money in the sector doesn't mean they're going to outsource less. If anything, if it was my business, I would have less fixed overhead and mm-hmm. I would I would outsource more. So that's the I suppose the conundrum for the outsourcing space, whether to stick or twist on this. Um, and on the whole, the market is still up versus you know two or three years ago. You know, 2021 might have been a bit of a freak year. It's funny, you know, I'm watching I'm, I'm watching the biotech market and I'm looking at the housing market across, you know, particularly the US and the UK where I spend most of my time. 
and then they're almost like identical. Like they're so high at the minute and any drop and it's like, oh my God, it's you know, doom and gloom. But actually, if you look at a, if you step back and you bring that lens to a 10 year, 20 year picture, this is a very vibrant time for the property market and for the biotech space. So I think we just have to be mindful of not taking it out of context too much, which is, you know, 2021 was a very positive year for the biotech funding and that no doubt had an impact on outsourcing. Um, but innovation has to happen. We are on, you know, there's so many exciting drug platforms and technologies that are coming through. I mean, the vaccine work we've just seen in it, you know, recently is just you know, the tip of, tip of the iceberg of some of the kind of you know, patient-saving medicines that are going to come to market. So we have to find ways of getting those to market. And you know, outsourcing space has to step up and actually risk share and, and, and help the drug developers as much as possible. So that'll be interesting to see, to see if that happens in the next few years. Yeah. Yeah. That risk sharing and, and assistance with drug development kind of gets back to that. Some of those blurred lines we talked about a little bit. And I've, I've always kind of been, uh, I don't know, it, the, the outsourcing space from a, an editorial coverage perspective uh, in on bioprocess online, um, as, mm-hmm. as well as on this podcast has always presented a bit of a conundrum to me uh, in that we, we view outsourcers as vendors slash suppliers. And I don't, as a matter of practice, interview vendors slash suppliers, right? I interview uh, sponsors and biopharma innovators and leaders of, of therapeutic development companies. Um, yet at the same time, like I look at the, I look at the outsourcing space and I, and I know a lot of people in the outsourcing space that I, that I talk to and, and respect, I just don't necessarily write about them on a few rare occasions. I have had outsourcing execs uh, on the show and enjoyed the conversations immensely, but it's very difficult to keep them reined in. It's very difficult to, uh, to, yeah, to your point, you made the point earlier. It's, you know, I, I, um, I have a, I have to I have to police the commercialization uh, aspect of, the, of those conversations, but I feel like I'm missing something there too because a good portion of our audience is technical and, and scientific in in nature. Uh, they do want content on you know facilities design, equipment design, you know mod- modularity, best practices in continuous process and continuous manufacturing. Um, and when I ask, you know, the the CEO or co-founder of a preclinical or phase one biopharma company about those things, oftentimes the response is, you know, I don't know, you'd have to talk to our outsourced manufacturer. They, you know, we 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 know what they're doing. We kind of monitor that, but like it's not it's not our bailey. We, we run the business, we do the development, we do the discovery, that kind of thing. Um, so I, I you know, it, it it it's tough for me because so much of that body of of technical and, and facilities knowledge begins and lives in in that outsourcing uh, space. Um, so, so yeah, maybe, uh, again, maybe, maybe you and I will be co-hosting a podcast. You make an interesting point around innovation. And I think, um, I think we're seeing more and more innovation coming out of the outsourcing space to be able to better cater for and support biopharma companies and so that that can only be a good thing and to your point there you know isn't it great when you speak to a, a you know a therapeutic company that has a, a relationship with a partner that says hey we trust them we we just get you know we, we know they got it like that's like in anything in life any partnership or relationship and like having that trust for a partner is is you know is ultimately what what you look for when you engage with anyone so i think that the Outsourcing space does have a responsibility to innovate and find ways to do things differently. And you mentioned it before as well, you know, not have only certain amount of space. If you take a facility, there's only a certain amount of space or a certain amount of resources they have to play with. So they're going to have to become cleverer with using the, you know, the resource and being able to build their businesses and yet continue to add value to the biopharma space. But it's funny. I mean, I've, I, I t- we're the exact opposite because I typically don't have your type of listener on my show, not because of anything, you know, that's wrong with your listener, clearly not because the, the, you know, very key leaders of the space and driving innovation and therapeutics and stuff like that. But at the same time, you know, it's, it is, it has been quite good every so often to have like a buyer. So we had, um, we had a head, the head of outsourcing for Bayer 
farmer in North America on. He was great. We had we had a couple of biotech companies on. We had um, Made Pharma, which is an Australian listed Australian company. They had a outsourcing for their business, and, it's, and you know it's fascinating getting the other side of the coin. Um, I suppose what's more difficult for you is they aren't selling anything. <laughs> Whereas when you get vendors on, it's going to be hard for them not to be like, oh, by the way, we have this new technology or whatever. And um, But, you know, there are some interesting people around you. You know, I suppose, you know, you've had Alan, Alan Shaw on your podcast a couple of times. And he's a fantastic guy for soundbites. We've, I think we've just had him, well, I interviewed him a, a couple of weeks ago. So I think he's going to be on our podcast soon. And, we oh, borrowed them from you guys. Uh-huh. I'm recording. I did. I definitely did tell you. <laughs> no, you, you may have told me you're going after him. As a matter of fact, I think I I I helped facilitate that. I'm just saying, yeah, Alan. Yeah. I don't I don't know that Alan told me that he's committed. So I'm going to have to have a conversation about that. You're going <laughs> to well, enjoy was, that one. You, you enjoy in, well, and what I was saying is, you know, for example, we've had um, someone like Jim Miller, who's been in the outsourcing space for 30, 40 years, and you. Know, He's not there to sell anything. He's there just to give his perspective on what's happening in the space. And so even for your guests, that type of insight might be quite helpful where it's less, less promotional. Let's just yeah. say. Yeah, it is. It is almost impossible in the, on those rare occasions that I've had uh, execs from the outsourcing space on, on this show, I've, uh, I've, I've made it a point to strategically invite them and, and one of their sponsor customers, right? So that we could talk more specifically about that sponsor's yeah, business, therapies they're developing and get those multiple perspectives, which I do think are valuable. I'm not, I certainly in no way because I call outsourcers vendors or, or suppliers, I'm, I'm not discounting their, you know, the, 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 uh, the value they bring to the conversation. But even in those cases where I have them on with a sponsor, you know, the sponsor will, will do their part, which is always great. And then uh, inevitably, when they start talking about how they came to, you know, their working relationship and, and contracted and worked together and the services they provide, you know, they, they, they can't, they, they can't do it without promoting, right? So, so no, no, it's, it's in their nature. It's in their nature. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, speaking of these, these transactional uh, relationships in, in biopharma, um, I, I, I wanted to, I wanted to talk briefly about uh, your agency because you guys just uh, you just you just recently had a, a, a sort of a transactional relationship of your own at, at raw marketing. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and I found that unique. You know, I you and I have similar backgrounds like going way back uh, prior to our, 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 our current uh, current industry in that, you know, I, I worked in sort of worked as sort of a generalist uh, Marcom person for, for a while at, at a couple of different agencies. And I know that space quite well. Obviously, I interact with agencies all the time in my current capacity as an editor and, and podcast host. Uh, and it's not, especially in the you know small to mid-sized agency realm, it's not a place where you often see a whole lot of like you know capital investment news or pr- private equity news. But yet, Raw Marketing uh, just recently uh, went the PE route, right? Yeah, that's right. Which is which is unique. I mean, it's unique for an agency, isn't it? Maybe it's not over there, but I think it's pretty unique over here. It, it is unusual, it, um, you know. And you know, remarketing is trying not to be promotional now, given that you know we've we've <laughs> I'll call we've you built the, you know we've built the business obviously over the last thirteen years, and you know I founded it from my you know from a, a small apartment in the northeast of England with no expectation of what it was going to become as as an organization and. You know, as we as the outsourcing, and you know, we primarily work with companies in the outsourcing space. That's where we have cut our teeth. And you know, we'll often get big pharma companies and biotech companies knocking on our door, and we'll be like, "We don't really do the stuff you want." And they're always kind of quizzically looking at us, scratching their heads, being, "What? You don't want our dollars?" And we know we we, we stick to our our niche, and that's that's worked well for the business. And as the as the market has grown. And our reputation has grown and we opened obviously an office in Boston a few years ago as well. That helped accelerate the growth of the business as well. And, you know, as a, as a founder, you get to a point where you need, it's kind of, you need to do something because (laughs) your entire or the big, a big portion of your, uh, you know, your wealth and your kind of everything that you've built up is just wrapped up in an organization. And that business is not going to slow down. It's going to continue to grow. So it felt like a good opportunity for, for me personally to de-risk slightly, but also bring 
uh, a private equity partner in that can just help us navigate where we're going in the future from you know the, their learnings and experiences. And, and back to what you said, Matt, it is quite unusual. I've been contacted quite a lot in the last couple of months from agency owners, kind of saying, "How the hell did you do that?" Yeah, and yeah. you know, and you know, what, what, you know, we've built a good business. You know, we've built a, gr- a fast-growing business. We're in a specific niche. It's a global market. You know, we. You know, and I'm not saying it was all accidental or all by design. It was probably somewhere in between. And, you know, there is a lot of private equity money out there at the minute, you know, globally. And so, you know, we managed to find a partner in, in North Edge that is you know, invested in life sciences, but particularly people-based businesses. Mm-hmm. So they loved what we were doing. And there's a real good culture fit there. And, you know, it's uh, you know, a few months in, it's so far so good. And, you know, good, good relationship there. And it's, it's growth for me, right? Because it's also because this is the next phase of my own personal career as well. In terms of what you know, and when you know a founder, you kind of you always wonder what it's like having investors around the table and all that kind of stuff. So it is a slightly different situation for me personally, but one I'm I'm really enjoying and yeah, very ambitious and excited for for the future. Yeah. Well, congratulations on that. You, you know, thank you. Point. Yeah, to your point, most of the agencies that I that I that I know, even the even the ones that are big now, started the way that you started, but kind of stayed there. It was all you know, bootstrapping, beg, begging, maybe borrowing a little bit, but uh, that, that that's really cool. It's good news, um, and you guys, you know, your your growth is uh, it's 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 exciting to watch. You know, the, the culture that the culture that you've created at the agency. Uh, kind of ex- it, it's it exudes, you know, in in your social media posts and your and your website. Uh, it's it's clearly a unique um, place to work, and and I know a lot of that is kind of wrapped up or built on um, your experiences as you've as you've kind of as you've kind of grown and 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 uh, maybe bumped bumped and bruised your knees a little bit along the way. Um, and you and enca- you you capture a whole bunch of those those bumps and scrapes and bruises in your book, which I want to ask you about too. And this is a first, by the way, you know, I, I don't, I don't, I don't typically, uh, you know, take, take the, take the folks who are hawking books on a book tour, uh, on, <laughs> on the podcast, but, but I want to ask you about it. Uh, you published a book, uh, beginning of this year, was it January? Yeah, that's right. It came out in the back end of January. It's called, a book called The Floundering Founder. And, if, you're uh, watching, if you're watching the video version of this pod, it's uh, it's it's over Raman's right shoulder and to his right. There you go. It's always there. It's always there. So there you go. And uh, yeah, no, it's it's uh, it was you know it's it's made up with kind of twenty four short lessons of how small service businesses that are stuck in a rut can kind of navigate their way forward. And it's as much about the business growth as it is about how to help founders navigate that growth. And it's very much based on my experience and quite literally all the mistakes I've made. I've made a ton of mistakes in the last 13 years. And there are things that I got wrong, which I can have documented in a way that will hopefully help other founders and entrepreneurs who are going through a, a similar journey. And, you know, in my experience, you know, it can be very lonely when you, when you start a business and you grow a business and, it's hard to find people that understand what, what you're going through. And so I try to capture quite a lot of that in that kind of empathetic side of things, but also tell it how it is and not, you know, not glitz it up too much. It's funny when you look at the Amazon reviews, it's <laughs> the words honest and authentic and brutal keep coming. You know, you just keep popping up, which is kind of the tone that I wanted it wanted to set in, you know, in as much of, and it's as much as I say about your businesses, you you know, any entrepreneurs or founders, because what is odd that I find is when people start their own businesses, they just stop investing in themselves. They get so consumed with the journey of the business that they don't go on courses. They don't listen to podcasts. They don't kind of, they almost just stop learning and stop making time for themselves. So I've managed to find some balance in that part of life. And I, I, you know, I put a lot of my personal success and actually in part then the business's success on down to the fact that I've managed to navigate personal growth at the same time. So I, I capture as much as that as possible in a very non-corporate kind of normal language type of way that ultimately gives founders some tools and techniques and insights and anecdotes that'll hopefully help them on the journey. And you know, I'm proud to say it was in the the at the end of January, it was a bestseller in the US and the UK and kind of in kind of entrepreneurship and 
kind of small business books in the US and in UK, which was, yeah, a very proud moment I received. I haven't got it behind me, but I did receive something from my publisher. Um, my publisher the other day, it's a beautiful framed picture, which um, I'll put on LinkedIn at some point. But yeah, it's been a it's been a really fun thing to do, quite honest. Very, very humbled by the feedback from people. And I got one guy messaged me a few months after it came out and just said, um, he just sent me a lovely message on LinkedIn saying, I was really struggling. I came across your book. It's just given me fire in my belly to get over the challenges I'm going through. And honestly, I showed my wife's like, like nearly wanted to cry, you know, watching this because, you know, it wasn't, you know, well, most people don't make money from books. It's not something you do to make money. You know, my intention was, I think I could capture something that can help people in the future. And uh, it was just, it, it was really lovely to see that kind of, genuine impact that I've made on someone's life I didn't know the guy I don't know where he lives or anything like that and it's just nice to see you can help people elsewhere in the world yeah that that that's very cool and it's sort of a I, I guess I'd say a, a, a it's, it's not like a horizontally focused book like it's not specific to founding any any specific type of business and I'm, and I'm curious about that because you know there, there's value right in in that book I would presume for the significant portion of our audience who are, are mm-hmm. founders of, of, of biopharma companies who I think are prone to prone perhaps to that mindset that you talked about where you become sort of, you know, you, 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 you with, withdraw almost to the point where yeah. you're so focused on, you think about, you think about a, a founder of a biopharma company who's working on perhaps a, a piece of intellectual property that was acquired from academia Um that's their life. Maybe they're a scientist to begin with. Maybe they were involved in the discovery of that, of that molecule. Um, and there's a lot of work to be done, right. In the dis- discovery and development of, of, of that molecule as a potential therapeutic. Uh, it's easy to put your head down, focus yeah. exclusively on that task and maybe building a team to, 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 uh, to tackle that task and kind of lose sight of not just yourself, but the, the world around you, the space around you, the industry around you. I guess what, uh, I mean, if you could draw maybe an anecdote or two uh, that might be spe- be particularly compelling to this space, right? Founders in the space of, of, of therapeutic uh, drug development. Yeah. What, what and you're right. You know, a lot of the learnings in the book, especially in the second half, are relevant for any founder and, and leader of an organization. And so, you know, one of the things, and I think it's applicable to your audiences, you know, in, on, a, on the service side of things, not every client is a good client and you have to learn to say no. You have to learn to recognize what is a good opportunity and what is a bad opportunity. And I think, you know, one of the tools I, I talk about is, you know, in our business, we have, we call it a defense checklist, right? We talk about if the potential buyer of our services demonstrates these types of behaviors or does this type of stuff, we walk away. We don't even let them in the gate. Now, I would argue for a biopharma leader, you could you could do something like that for an investor audience, right? Like not every investor is going to be a good investor. I'm sure most of your listeners have got scars they can oh, yeah. share. And and the other one, you know, is is that you know learning from failure, right? Of actually, you know, unfortunately, the the market we operate in does have lots of failures, and and actually learning from those mistakes and. Sometimes if the science doesn't work, the science doesn't work, right? But actually, there are other areas in terms of who you recruit, you know, and how you lead a team and all that type of stuff, which I think when you'll get wrong, you'll get hires wrong, and you'll get business relationships wrong. And I think, again, learning from those and taking the silver linings out of that. And, and one thing I would say for biopharma audience and something you captured right at the start, you, you used the word enthusiastic. <laughs> I get that all. I, I got that since I was a kid. It was like, when anyone couldn't say anything nice about me, they'd be like, oh my God, he's so full of energy and enthusiasm. That's it, right? And so, and what's really fascinating about that trait, it was once kind of like, oh my God, like everyone says that about me. And that's like, it's almost like the pat on the head, like, all right, at least he's, at least he's enthusiastic. <laughs> yeah. But it's also, it's it's ended up being a superpower in, in terms of one of my traits when it comes to building culture and actually attracting people to the organization and all that type of stuff. And the reason I mention it is I suspect most of the founders and, and business leaders in, in your listeners are, whether they're scientists or whether they're business people, that passion for what they do is so infectious in their organizations and recognizing that their role is to just keep doing that and set the tone and set that example. And that helps build the tone of a culture in an organization. And, you know, I've, we've 
managed to build a phenomenal culture in our organization. And I could, I can't tell you how we did it. I could, I, it's just happened. And our brand values are, are, are core to that in the way that we operate and the way that we deal with each other and respect each other. But a lot of it in my head is just setting that tone and setting that tone of responsiveness and enthusiasm and passion. And that's then the first five, 10 team members embody that. And then that's passed to the next 20 team members and 50 team members. And then it just kind of snowballs after that. So I think those would be some of the things that I would suggest, you know, whether people can get them from the book or just from this podcast today is like, don't underestimate that passion and that kind of enthusiasm that you love, which makes your organization special or your technology special or your drugs product special or the unmet you know, need you're trying to, to go after because of some personal reason. That is just magic for culture and, and t- something to not underestimate. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's sound advice. And uh, it's coming from a, a, from a great place because you've, you've proven it uh, in all your endeavors. That enthusiasm has fueled a lot of projects out of, <laughs> yeah. of ramen Siegel. I mean, this guy, this guy's it annoys my wife. It annoys my wife as well. So there is a downside to everything. <laughs> uh, I'll, bet, uh, I'll bet you put just as much energy and enthusiasm into being a, a husband and dad as you do a professional. So I try, I try. It's, it's always a battle, isn't it? So, but yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 It's tough. You gotta, you gotta make sure you're bringing, you know, sometimes you feel like you, you take your best self and leave your best self at the, at the office. You gotta make sure you bring some of that home now and then. Absolutely. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. I had more on my agenda, Raman, but we are, uh, we're running short on time. So we might have to do a, a, a part two, but I'm going to let you take it away with a concluding thought. Um, I don't know. Take, take, take it wherever you want to take it. Give it, give us a concluding thought. Put you on the spot. Concluding, my, <laughs> we have a, I think my concluding thought for your listeners are, you know, what I'd ask, you know, my podcast looks to promote and celebrate the outsourcing space. And I think when you're thinking about your vendors and relationships with vendors beyond just capabilities and quality and capacity and all the kind of literal stuff, you know, my advice to you is vendors change like biotech companies change, right? So the vendor on day one might be that same vendor might be very different in five years time because the market is changing so much. So continually assess your partnerships explore new options on the market don't just go to the default options and you know like anything in life good relationships meeting promises ability to build a relationship are just core to to the kind of relationships that that you build with your your kind of vendor audience or your outsourcing partners so that would be my kind of concluding thing is that keep an open mind and keep curious and exploring and make sure your teams are doing the same rather than thinking, you know, you mentioned before that, oh, well, you know, everyone has long lead times. I don't think that's the case. I think that's just lazy thinking from some people. And actually there is always a way, there is always companies that are hungry for business and hungry for opportunities. So my advice would go, you know, go Google them, go to events, ask me, whatever. I'm more than happy to help, I'm, you know, anyone in the space, you know, like myself, will be able to recommend people to have a conversation with. Nice. I, I, I love it when a guest calls BS on a, on a, you know, tight, tightly held industry <laughs> belief that isn't necessarily true. That's perfect. Um, yeah. So uh, just to, just to wrap things up, as I said, you're into a million different things and you can be found pretty much anywhere, but where's, where's, what's the clearinghouse of, of Ram and Siegel? Is there, if, if people want more information on, the, the agency, the the book, the podcast, the the blogging, the uh, you know, the, yeah, the, all of it. Where, where where do we get more Raman Siegel? So RamanSiegel dot is my like you know my I suppose base for access to everything. But beyond that, you know, find me on on LinkedIn. Um, you know, I'm pretty easy to find on LinkedIn. Just look for my name. There's only a couple of us out there, and um, yeah, please connect. It'd be great to hear from your audience, and I suppose. Matt, congratulations on your podcast and the good work that you do. I know how hard it is first time to, you know, to do all the interviews and prepare for the interviews and do the follow-up and do the editing, and the production and the publishing. It's it's hard work. And, you know, we're laughing at the start about people that don't have the staying power and, you know, kudos to you and your discipline and commitment and you're building a great platform. So congratulations. Oh, thanks, man. Thanks. And, and back to you. 
Back to you for sure. Thank you. You're doing a great job as well. And uh, we'll, we'll do it again. We'll definitely do it again. We'll stay in touch. Well, and I'd love to have you on my podcast. So let's, uh, you can repay the honor. And if you'd love to be, I'd love to get you on a guest in Molecules Market. You can, uh, you can tell the vendor CEOs what you think about them if you want. So. <laughs> I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll do it. Just promise me I don't have to follow Alan Shaw. As long as I don't have to follow Alan Shaw, he, he's going to be a ratings boost for you. And I don't want to look like a letdown. So we'll, we'll definitely. We'll, we'll leave some on. space. We'll leave some space. <laughs> definitely. We'll tie out on that. Thanks, Thanks. again, Raman. Thanks, Matt. So that's Raman Siegel. I'm Matt Piller. And this is the business of biotech. We're produced by Bioprocess Online. We're supported by Cytiva. Both Bioprocess Online and Cytiva demonstrate our commitment to helping emerging biopharma companies navigate the business of biotech at bioprocessonline.com and cytiva.com backslash emerging biotech. Check those out. Please subscribe to my Bioprocess Online newsletter. And if you're digging the business of biotech, subscribe to it. Leave us a review. And thanks for listening.